Hey, everyone. It's Kelly Carlin. This is Waking from the American Dream. And, you know, as we like to do here, uh, we always like to start with a song. So uh, happy new year. And uh, here's our song. Took my shadow to the sun today, shine on the light in a different way. Little girl won't come out and play, see me hide, watch me run away.
in pursuit of your applause Watching all your actions, I assume I am the cause You're the main attraction of a clown in your satchel You are follow blind until you tell me where to go That was a little something called Shadow to the Sun. It's on a CD called The Alchemy of Love, Book One by Brownstein Houston Music. Uh, you can find more of their stuff on uh, their website, which is www.brownsteinhoustonmusic.com, as well as iTunes. Uh, that came to me from uh, David Brownstein, a friend of mine. Um, who's, uh, many has, wears many, many hats, one of them, which is musician. And, uh, I just, uh, not only do I just love the energy of that song, but there's something about the shadow. I've been really, uh, sitting the last, uh, about 10 days kind of hibernating a little after a crazy, crazy gig of being a producer on the green room with Paul Provenza. And this time of year, I, I normally hibernate. I'm normally in a cave and I've got like books around me and my journal and I, uh, I kind of just muse a lot and sleep and nap and go and stare outside at the flowers. And I don't do a hell of a lot this time of year because I really believe in kind of feeding the soul during the winter. And, uh, and, and so one of the things I've just been really musing about and thinking about is the, the impact of the shadow, uh, not only on my own life and all the aspects of myself that I don't like or scare me or I don't want to hear from, but certainly how much the shadow is in charge of our country, <laughs> in particular, the rhetoric in our country and how no one's taking responsibility and no one's, uh, well, not no one, but you know, not many people take responsibility for Who's really talking? Who's really in charge of their thoughts and their motivations? And um, I just see a lot of id out there lately. So uh, I just I thought that song was uh, a nice little kind of honoring of all of our projections and all of the stuff we do. Um, so uh, like I was saying, uh, hibernation. Uh, yeah, I haven't been around a bit. It's it's been uh, a few weeks, more than a few weeks since I did a show. Uh, but that was necessary. There was the holidays and all that stuff, you know. And then, of course, there was this amazing two weeks where uh, I was in full-fledged production mode working on this crazy, wonderful production called The Green Room with Paul Provenza, which is on Showtime. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, it'll be on early summer, I think. Uh, but check it out online. And it's just this amazing show where these comedians all get together and sit around with Paul and talk about anything and everything. And the production itself is, is quite a happening. Uh, and I was a talent producer. I was the talent producer. So that means I got to spend a couple of months with Paul brainstorming and kind of being in the creative soup, which is what we love to do so much. 
Uh, and then I got to do the second part of my job, which is calling agents and managers and dealing with contracts and talent and ego and all of that kind of stuff. And mm, not so fun, but um, because I am an adult child of an alcoholic, <laughs> I'm actually really good at this job because I'm really good at kind of reading people and knowing what they need and, of course, smoothing over feathers and being very diplomatic and uh, so I, I, I'm unfortunately good at a job that I, I don't really <laughs> like doing that part. And then, of course, the taping nights were insane because we did two shows a night and we taped about 80 minutes per show. And we had anywhere from eight to 10 comedians coming in each night. So it was crazy. But uh, in the end, it was it was an incredible experience for me. And it's really making my kind of everyday, day to day, many hats living as an artist coach, thinker kind of person in the world, uh, I really appreciate it more because I don't have to do contracts and talk to agents. Not, not that all agents are bad. Actually, some of them are really cool and we have, we have a nice rapport and I actually have a relationship with them now. But there are a few out there who are <clears throat> not human. Uh, so I've been, uh, reconnecting with myself and I'm really excited because part of the reconnection is, and part of this new energy I have is that I'm going to go weekly with this show and I'm ready to do that. And I'm excited and encouraged by that because a lot of people have been encouraging me and, uh, and curious to see who shows up, you know, who, who shows up here to, to play with me, uh, in this, uh, in this little sandbox here that I have, um, Anything else I wanted to mention? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, except for, yeah, I just have to put a plug in for something else. Uh, last night, I went again to my local uh, bar, which is called Melody Room. I live in Westchester by LAX. And um, every Wednesday night, there's something there called Guitarology. And it's this guy, Stephen Pat, who's an MD by day, but he's also used to be a touring guitar player. Uh, he used to play with the Chamber Brothers. And he knows uh, tons and tons and tons of great session and touring guitar players. And every Wednesday night in this little, not so much hole in the wall anymore, but pretty small little bar by LAX across from the In-N-Out on Sepulveda, this guy brings in the most amazing talent. And sometimes it's only, uh, they have like a basic band. And then some nights there's one guy who always comes in. He's a featured player. And then some nights there's three or four other guys who just come in and plug in. And last night we had a fiddle player and the week before they had a guy who had a flute and uh, a saxophone. And I've been going now for about two months and I was sitting there last night watching this guy, Big Manny, play some Fats Domino. And I realized that this is my father's music and this is the gift and the legacy. Yeah, comedy, whatever. Yeah, George Carlin, what the fuck. The real legacy my father gave me is a true appreciation of American music. And I sat there last night really getting like, wow, I want to help the legacy of this, you know, this American music uh, go forward as long as I'm here on this planet and let people really see, um, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's rock and roll. And I'm sure I'll get into jazz more too, but to really see that, um, this is an incredible American art form. So I'm very, very, uh, just honored to be there every Wednesday night. So check it out. It's Guitarology. They've got a Facebook page. I'm sure they have a website. Uh, come down. There's no cover. Hello. There's no cover. And let me tell you, it's the realest thing in LA that you're going to find. So I just, I just had to plug that again because <laughs> every time I go, it's so good. Uh, 
Anyway, let's get on to business here. We have an actual guest in the studio today. Uh, by the way, my uh, fabulous producer, Babs Roman, just walked in. So uh, she's here. She comes all the way from Malibu. God bless her heart. Thank God we're going out after this and doing something fun in Hollywood. Anyway, my guest today is a new friend of mine and someone who I'm very excited to have here. Uh, her name is Lorraine Newman. And, of course, she's best known for her work as... Uh, a not ready for a primetime player on the very, very iconic first five years of Saturday Night Live. Uh, but in addition to that, of course, she does all sorts of other things. Uh, she's done a ton of dramatic roles and comedic roles for film and television. And she's also done a bunch of animated character voices. And I was looking at her IMDb page and thinking, Okay, she's like in every cool animated film and TV show that I've ever, ever loved, especially in the last 10 years. I mean, Wally, Up, Cars, Madagascar, on and on and on. Um, but in addition to her acting and her voiceover work, uh, Lorraine is, uh, also been reading some personal essays around town, uh, town being LA. And that's actually how I met her. We met at my friend, Wendy Hammer's uh, event called Tasty Words. And uh, so uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Lorraine Newman. Kelly, I I aged a while during the intro. I was in my <laughs> late 50s when we started. And then when the intro, at this point, I'm in my mid-60s. <laughs> and we have no more time for the show. Okay, thank you, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, you know, I was listening to that record you played, and it reminded me a lot of just the music mm -hmm. of a band I really like called um, Pretty Lights, mm -hmm. a song they do called Hot Like Sauce, Oh, I saw them at Coachella last year. I love them. Yes. But, uh, I like the music from that song. It was really nice. Yeah, it was. It had a nice kind of tight force to it. Um well, we might as well start with what you just said. I mean, the the, the night I met you, you'd done a, a piece, a personal essay about your time at Coachella, and you had all this music that you cued into the essay. Yes, yes. And I sat there going, um, wow, first of all, you're a great writer and an amazing performer, but wow, I want to get that fucking set list from Lorraine. <laughs> I did send you that stuff. You did. Okay. You did. I should have just burned a CD for you. Yes. Well, no, no, no. Well, that's okay. I've, I've been, and I've been adventuring out uh, lately. And, uh, awesome. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. And and checking into that. But so tell me about this Coachella thing, because I went even to your website and you've got pictures of Coachella. What's the, what's the pull here for you? Well, it's, um, I had gone to, I've always loved music. I've always loved contemporary music. And my taste is very eclectic. I mean, I like everything except jazz. And I... <laughs> uh, it's fair. I mean, you know. And I think, you know, I think your children keep you young. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, I think, as I said in the, in the piece, when I would drive them to school, my daughter was kind of like the DJ, and she would burn CDs for everybody in school. And so when she became aware of Coachella she started playing the bands that would be appearing there. And I loved them. Mm -hmm. I loved every single band she played. And so, you know, I was going on the Coachella website and looking at all the lineup, and if there was a band that I hadn't heard of, I would click on their name. It would take me to their website. It would play their top songs. And, you know, I have the taste of a teenager, so I'd know in three seconds whether I like them <laughs> or not. You know, it's like, hmm, okay, next. And... You know, that's how I would find new bands. And that's happened every year since. 
So I always find a band. But there's something about going there that is so magical. It's, you know, it's a huge polo field. I mean, it's immense. And the first day, it's completely green. It is, you know, grass for miles, you can see. And there's art installations. And they're interactive. Mm. You can play on them. I think last year there was this weird glass piano that you could sit on, and when you played it, all these things would light up. It was just spectacular. Wow, kind of like a Burning Man type of... I guess. I've never been to Burning Man, but but I imagine, yeah, the same thing. And then there's this place called the Dew Lab, and the Dew Lab is kind of like this oasis in the middle of, you know, all the tents and the stages where it's just DJs, and it's an open area. That's where the circus happens, too. I should tell you about the circus later. <laughs> but um, that's where you can be anonymous, and mm. you can just dance. And when your kids have abandoned you, which always happens... <laughs> when you're a mother of a teenager. Yeah, and you're an adult wandering around trying not to look like an asshole... <laughs> You could just go into the do lab and kind mm. of dance to the beats. Nice. You know? Yeah. And it's loud. You know, the, the beats just go right through your chest and it's fantastic. Mm. And sometimes bands will just be there as DJs. Like one year it was the Chemical Brothers, but not playing. They were there as a DJ. Wow. And it's just, um, I feel like, uh, you know, I think every person who looks in the mirror at every age, especially when you're older, thinks, who is that person in the mirror? Mm -hmm. I'm 17. Damn it, I am 17. Well, you know, when you're at Coachella, you're 17. Well, you know, and and there's something about you, just even when you talk about it, I can just feel the energy of it that, I mean, even all all the work you do, and, and I think about that original playground you were in, you know, in New York at Saturday Night Live, there's just this sense of, exploration and creativity and play and, and, you know, all the voices you do. Um, there's something about that that seems like that's that's where you live in that space. I think, yeah, when we were doing the show, there was a, a, a real sense of freedom, even though, you know, we'd all seen shows like Laugh-In, but there was still something very, uh, I think, packaged about Laugh-In. And Lorne gave us all the feeling that, you know, whatever you want, you know, whatever you've brought from, I brought a lot of material from the Groundlings. The Valley Girl character was from the Groundlings and other stuff that I did there. And people brought stuff because that's what they had to start out with. Mm-hmm. But then we were all introduced to each other's style, and everybody had a flavor of what was happening currently where they came from. But we were all young. Danny and I were 23. Yeah. Lauren was 28. Mm. You know, the oldest person was was Garrett. <laughs> And, but, you know, it was just, it was, uh, we were able to really do, within reason, material that uh, was very personal. Mm. That's interesting. Personal. I, yeah, I, would, I, I mean, being a person, you know, so, so my thing was 75, uh, I was 13, you know, so, so, and those years when you were on, I mean, that was when I was in high school with all of my friends and our whole week was about getting up to that night, you know, in whatever shape and form we were in <laughs> chemically too, uh, to, 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 to experience you guys. And, and, and I, and I, that's so interesting, the word personal, because for us receiving it, it was like, oh, people, there's people who, 
are breaking rules, who are doing things that uh, we've never seen, ever, ever seen before. I mean, Python a little bit was, you know, coming out through PBS at that time. But, you know, uh, the, the characters and, and the lines you were crossing all the time. And, and I just, that's so, that's so interesting well, to me. It took us a while to find our form. If you'll notice when you see our first show, which was hosted by your dad. Yes. It's, it doesn't bear any resemblance it's true. to what the show is now. We were really finding our way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, these characters, I look at the characters that Kristen Wiig does, and they're very personal and mm. very specific. And that that's really a lot of what Groundlings was all about. Mm-hmm. And again, I have to go back to something like Laugh-In, and, you know, not to take anything away from what they did, but Lily Tomlin's characters were the only ones yes. that were, were in that genre. Yes. Everything else was very, very broad, very almost vaudeville. Yes, it's true. And, you know, also the repetition of characters was very much that style. Right, right. Um, but it's important to do that or they're not memorable. Right, yeah. But these characters were also serving the material, mm. which was subversive, mm. you know, on our show. Mm-hmm. And I think that was different. Yeah, and, and, I, and I get now what you mean more by personal, because I noticed the little bit of character work I've done and improvisation, you know, and voices I do that, um, you know, even when I do my Valley Girl, she's very specific to me. And I know what her whole world is about and what she believes and what's important to her. And, and so I, I just, it like clicked like, oh, okay, I get it. Like, yeah, you have to, it has to live inside of you somewhere, you know? And, and, and I think it's interesting too, because uh, one of the things, you know, I studied Jungian therapy, Jungian psychology, and we talk a lot about archetypes in that world. And some of the work I do is something I call the poly mind process, where I help people access the different voices. And, and I'm just wondering if like your ability to access all these characters and all these people inside of you has um, made you feel more sane or more <laughs> insane as you've gone through the decades. Well, I, I'm too uninteresting to be unsane, insane. I, I, I think, you know, that's, that's giving me too much credit. I, I think I'm very, very normal and very kind of down to earth and, um, I don't think any of my characters are insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think my characters exorcise anything out of me, uh-huh. but they certainly uh, have ac- aspects of me. But also, my characters allow me to reflect things that I see in our culture and in our world or a type or people that I've had to deal with mm-hmm. and allow me to have that communion with an audience. When they laugh, it's like... Oh, yeah, I've had to deal with them too. Yes. You know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's the most pleasure I get out of, out of re- the response. Yeah. Uh, the identifying. It, yeah. And, and is getting to, to be the voice of the collective in some way, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so true. Um, so, so I was just really curious because when you came out of Saturday Night Live and you guys had, change the face of television, certainly, late night television at that point. And, and then you well, left. our show and SCTV. Because yes, absolutely. SCTV was actually, I think, also their style took off even more 
where we left off and, and continued in, in our direction where we went into a different direction. But I love the direction that they went. Now, and what when you say that, what direction was it that you guys went and they stayed course with? What's... Well, we, we got locked into, um, uh, you know, sketches, musical guest, right. update, gotcha. sketches. Yes. You know. Right, right. You had your formula. You had your 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 format that you Whereas, you know, um, things like Mr. Show are very much like yes. SCTV. There was no rhyme or reason, nothing connected to anything. Right. You know, um, there was one sketch that I will never forget. It was a soap opera, and Andrea Martin had this recurring thing where she was like, she was the former ingenue that was getting, like, kicked, <laughs> or, kicked over for this uh, up-and-coming ingenue, and whenever they would compliment the new one, it was like, oh, God, you were so great in that scene, and Andrea Martin had this flask, and she was saying, I was great once. <laughs> she would just down the flask, and it was like, oh, you were so funny in that scene. I was funny once. <laughs> you know, down the flask. It was just, it was so specific and so, you know, our, our Sammy Maudlin, you know, <laughs> they also reflected the worst of yes. our TV yes. because, of course, that's what Canada got, <laughs> you know, and I, I just, I loved them so much. Yeah. And there was, that was all character stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm having fond memories right now. I'm like, I'm going to go dig those up now again. God, I haven't thought about them in a while. Oh. And John Candy always makes me sad. Oh, yeah. So uh, when you left SNL, uh, what was that like for you? Did you have to, like, take time off to figure – I mean, it, it must have been like being in a blender, whirlwind, tornado, vacuum pack. I, I don't even know what metaphor to use. But... Oh, well, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then when my brother and I were 11, we moved to Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. So I went to school with the children of movie stars, even though my parents were not in the business. Right. And um, just, you know, going Christmas shopping in Beverly Hills. <laughs> oh, yes. You see Cary Grant and Fred Astaire. You would see, and then you would see people who had been on series but were no longer on series. Mm -hmm. And even as a teenager, I saw that look in their face. And I, I, I didn't know that I was going to be a performer. I knew I wanted to be. Mm. But I never knew that that would happen for me. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I never wanted that look on my face. Mm. And so, of course, the reality that we have for ourselves that allows us to survive <laughs> never allows us to think that we fall into that category. Right. And I don't know that I did. But, you know, those were uh, times where I had to come to terms with the fact that I was very young when I did the show. And for me, I felt that I needed more time to grow mm. at the Groundlings. And I don't feel that I, I feel that I stopped growing when I was doing the show oh. in a lot of ways. And I don't think it's anybody's fault. Right. But I think that that's what happened. And so when I was like, you know, uh, back home, I was kind of adrift for a long time. Uh huh. Um, and it took me a long time to find my way back and find out what it was that I could do. Right. I mean, I was getting work, but I had no idea what I was doing. Well, well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, I, I think about television as this beast in some ways, and you have to kind of feed it when you're in the middle of production. It's, It's got a mind and a pace of its own. And I could see how going to New York, working like you did at that pace... Well, I think some people could do it, hmm. but I wasn't evolved mm -hmm. to the point where mm -hmm. I could 
do it. Right. You know, I, I wasn't mature enough. Well, you to, were, tw- like you said, you were 23 when you started. I mean, you know, it, I was a young 23 too. And, you and know? yeah, 23 is like, so, it's, a, we, you know, there are some people who could, I, I right. just wasn't that person. Right. So, um, so, so you, you, you found, you, you clearly did find your feet. You, you did find a sense of what was, who you are and what you wanted to be about. What, what was that for you when you discovered that? Well, the first thing really that, that, um, I think was the animation, mm. but there were also so, all sorts of live performances all around town. There was a, a political thing. I think it was the Hollywood primary mm-hmm. that was done at the Blossom Room at the Hollywood Roosevelt. It was Chris Guest and Harry Shear and uh, Tom wow. Leopold and a bunch of other people, Valerie Curtin. So there were th- venues, mm-hmm. you know, to do live stuff so that I could still have my hand in live performing, which is really the only thing when you're unemployed that reminds you that you have any talent. Yes, absolutely. Because this is what became the bane of my existence was auditioning mm. when I couldn't remember if I was any good. Mm. And that's actually the thing that I'll be performing up in San Francisco uh, and up in Mill Valley. Oh, this cool. new piece that I've written called The Audition. Oh, good. Because I still have a lot of trouble with them. Mm. And it's actually something I've always had trouble with. But it, um, it's gotten worse over the years because, <laughs> you know, I just, I don't, I think people who work all the time, especially people who come out, like who work on Broadway, they're like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. They work all the time and they work in front of a live audience. And they have a certain kind of confidence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to go back. What I've been doing is going back to what I started out doing, mm. which is writing my own material yes. and performing it yeah, so that I can remember to connect with what it is that I really do. Right, right. And, and, and that writing that you've been doing, I, I, was, I noticed I was, went online and was looking at your stuff, um, kind of your your website and stuff. And I noticed you'd like, you'd done some articles and some things and, and now you're, and then you started blogging on the Huffington post. You know, you're like me. I think I have four blogs on there. Uh, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I should be doing that. Shouldn't I? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, homework. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh, I don't want to. Um, but your, your process with writing and your relationship to it, how, how has that changed and, and where are you at with it right now? The, um, difference for me is I never came out on stage as myself. Mm-hmm. I would always do character monologues. I didn't know who that was. It took, I mean, as corny as that sounds, I didn't know my own voice. It makes sense, yeah. But I've, you know, I've, I've lived a long cotton-picking time. <laughs> so now I, I feel more comfortable doing that. But in, in just the print work, uh, my high school friend, Amy Efron, started this <laughs> food website called one for the table mm-hmm. and she'd just give me assignments and I was I had no idea I could write about food I had no idea that I could do that kind of stuff and those essays mm-hmm. some of them could become performance pieces and some of them did mm. a few of them but really it was it was the kind of thing where it's almost like in school where you get a prompt mm-hmm. some of the prompts that I got for the articles that I wrote became performance pieces. Wow. Well, and I think that's so interesting because, uh, that whole thing about facing just the void or the blank page and having a prompt or having an assignment or having a deadline 
it's, it creates enough of a little line around it so that you can focus all, everything, the whole universe that comes through your head, uh, into a space, you know. And, and I know for me, and you know, I've talked a little bit about this. For me, I love the process of sitting down at the beginning and I give myself big permission. I call it vomit on the page. <laughs> And I do Anne Lamott's shitty first drafts, like oh, bless her. full, per- oh God bless that woman, full permission to just write the shittiest shit, shit, whatever it is. And, you know, most of the time it's not that shitty, that first draft, but just giving myself permission to do that. And then what I love is having no idea what I'm going to write. And then stuff comes on the page and it starts happening and you start thinking, who the hell's in charge of this? Yeah, it's, it's like, and I'm not going to compare myself to Michelangelo, but it's like he's chipping the marble away from the statue that's underneath it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how, how you do, then you get a piece of something, two, three, four, five, whatever it is, however many pages. And then you do, you start to like, uh, for me, it's a very visceral experience. I feel in my body what's working, what's not working what direction it wants to go and that ending that it needs to be and how do I serve that, you know? I just love that. Yeah, sometimes things write themselves. It's if you, especially characters, Mm -hmm. if you have a really strong notion of that character, they write themselves. That's always been my experience. Characters have always written themselves. Um, And it's the same with an article. I mean, you know, I, I, for instance, have road rage. Mm -hmm. And there was a time where I found myself uh, my kids went to two different schools on opposite sides of town. Oh, man. <laughs> so I was picking them up at rush hour, oh. and I drove carpools for both of them. And I couldn't stand one of the kids in one of the carpools or his parents. And they one had Hebrew school, one had uh, and competitive cheer in Pasadena. Wow. And a stand-up comedy class in West Hollywood. Oh, you know, I was... I was in my car. Yeah. And so, I mean, this, this road rage piece, piece wrote itself. Mm-hmm. And I actually quote Anne Lamott in it. <laughs> you know that you've, uh, I think it says, you know that you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> <That's> so true. Because <laughs> uh, I would imagine, you know, a punishing rapture that would just vacuum up all these people that were in my fucking way. <laughs> exactly. You know, because yes. I knew that the reason that I was sitting there yes. was someone was stupid. <laughs> At you least know? one or two, oh. maybe more. Do you ever uh, write fiction, write these, let these characters like write novels or screenplays or? Long form has eluded me. Hmm. I mean, I have a memoir that is in my drawer that has come out nine times. Hmm. And, you know, I just... Well, now I'm just bored by it. I, I, just, I bore myself. Yeah, the sure. literal translation of boredom in, from French, ennui. I bore myself. Mm. Um, I long form is tough. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I've uh, that's something I've been tackling. You know, because I've been doing these personal essays now for about ten years, and you know, they're anywhere from like four to eight to ten pages. You know, I mean, you're lucky if you get. 11 minutes up there on a stage to do one of these, you know, so six, seven, eight page, you know, and you get in a rhythm, you know how to like do the arc of that. And I'm actually been working on my, uh, my, my own book and my, you know, my stories. And, but I've been doing this, you know, trying to figure out how to do the long form of it and thinking, 
how does one sustain the 262 page arc? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you hold all of that at once? And, and I, you know, and I'm guessing that these little bits I'll be able to string together in nice ways and, and make them. But, but yeah, like the screenplay, I, I have a couple half written screenplays because I get to the middle of act two and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's going uh-huh. on. <laughs> Well, my conundrum is, first of all, what do I leave in? What do I leave out? Uh, always. It's interesting to me. Is it, Would it be interesting to someone else? Yeah. You know, and also the most essential thing, the selling point for anything that I would write is SNL. Right. I remember the beginning. Yeah. I remember the end. Yes. I don't remember the middle. <laughs> it's all a gulag. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. I, I You know, having a, a parents who did a lot of uh, chemicals, you know, so I did a lot of blanking out of my childhood but you know you, you you can you can find essence in a lot of things too um i was curious um one of the things that uh you've written about is being a mom and the carpool thing you know and and all of that and the coachella thing there's a lot of connection is uh, you know, and i'm not a mom i have two dogs and uh love them dearly dogs but dogs are, are nice babies they're nice but um you can always put them out back when you're uh-huh. mad at them <laughs> and you really can leave Not them for dogs. hours at times yeah. as long as they have a little kibble in the bowl uh but i was just curious like how is being a mom and being a an artist performing and writing and and and, and, and acting artist how are those things compatible how are they not how do they feed each other are they, do they help each other do they tear you in part well i mean i was never the kind of successful actor that was on a stage 12 hours a day or on location mm-hmm. i was never in that position so i can't speak to that right i had the ideal job which is animated series and it was lucrative and it was two hours a day and you're laughing your ass off and acting stupid and then you go home. Right. And you're in time to pick up your kids or make dinner or whatever. And it was it was just I was a lucky, lucky person yeah. with regard to that. And the older they got, you know, it almost seemed like uh, the things that I was doing m- accommodated their milestones. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um. I like to think that anyway. Um, now that <laughs> You'll the, know in 20 years. I mean, I have one, <laughs> one kid in college. Oh, God. <laughs> they can pay for the therapy. I'm not going to. Yeah, that's that's best. Um, <laughs> Keep those boundaries. There's one kid in college, and there's a, a sophomore in high school, and uh, uh, that's I've just now started to really get out of the house more, and, and I've always been on their asses with the homework. I have always been sitting on them. Mm-hmm. I won't go out on a school night. Mm-hmm. Now I'm starting to do it more. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and do you find that you're, you know, because we talked earlier here about that space, that playful improvisational space that you live in, that you're clearly your creativity, and your imagination live in. How has that helped you to be a mom? Oh, you have to be an improviser to be a parent. Mm. Absolutely. Um, you have to be ready for anything. And, and the thing is that I always thought that I was so smart hmm. until I had teenagers. <laughs> and the thing is that they are so baffling. Mm. You know, they, um, they look human. <laughs> they really... And my younger one is so adept at looking reasonable. Mm-hmm. You know, I will give her a reasonable 
persuasive case. I will present a persuasive case. And she will have all the facial expressions of cognition <laughs> and even make the sounds that are appropriate to empathic understanding right. and then not do any of it. <laughs> and um, and my, my kids laugh about the angry dance that mommy does in the middle of the kitchen. <laughs> and I, I'm like uh, Grandpa Amos from The Real McCoys, you know, <laughs> my God damn it, you know, and I have gotten to that point. I, I forgot your question. <laughs> Yeah, you have to be an improviser. I mean, I have to improvise dinner because I'm not good at planning. Right, right. I hate doing that. I mean, I, these women that plan, you know, dinner for the whole week. I don't know. Fuck them. They it's, can suck my dick because I, I can't do that. I know. And I think, really? Like, I don't know. I, I get I get very cruel and mean when I think about people like that who can do things like that. I think. But there's just so many aspects to being, you know, and playing with them mm. is one big improv. Obviously, you know that Viola Spolin's yes. original reason for creating the games was for children. Yeah. But that is the most fun. And I'm glad that I had kids when I was older because there was nothing I would have rather been doing than playing with them and mm. being their mother. Mm. They weren't keeping me from anything. Mm, that's great. That's very cool. Um, Oh, God, I had something in my head, and it went away, and I hate... Oh, I'm so sorry. I hate that. Oh, I, oh, I know what it was. I was thinking, you could... you, Lorraine, you need to, like, write a book about being a mom of teenagers. I think that would be a great book. You know what I want to do a book about um, is camp letters. Parents' letters to kids. Uh-huh. Because I used to write my kids as the dogs. <laughs> oh, that's great. Along with pictures. <laughs> And I think it would be fun to, like, you know, get a bunch of celebrities to write letters, you know, to a compilation of their letters to their kids. That would be wonderful. I think it would be a great book. When, when my dad used to go on the road when I was a little girl, he would uh, be at some city and he would get um, 10 or 12 postcards. And he would just put a single word on each one. Oh, that's great. And send oh, them all to me. Great. And then I would have to put the sentence together. Oh, that is so brilliant. Yeah, it was really, oh, really fun. So fun. I, creative parents are great. Oh. I, it was fun having it. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, my God. Yeah, it was, it was very sweet of him. Um, so what's up for you next? You and I are both going up to Mill Valley. Yes, we are. We'll be at the... We'll be appearing together. You'll be seeing the audition piece. I know. I'm so excited. What are you going to be doing now? Uh, I don't know. I think I might do my, um, my Leif Garrett story. I haven't seen You haven't seen my Leif Garrett story? No, I haven't. Oh, I'm so excited. You're going to say Leif Garrett. I can't wait. Oh, my God. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. And, uh, that's, uh, end of February, February 26th, I right, think. And right. I'm just so excited because it's my first paid gig as a spoken word artist. I'm just so excited. So, and it's, have you been up there? Have you seen the Throckmorton? I've never seen it. It's this luscious little theater in the middle of perfect little Mill Valley, which is, you know, redwoods and liberals and Whole Foods and oh, that's good to know, lots of Priuses. I have a line in it that- you know, oh, if they're oh. not liberals, it'll be rough. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is this will be this will be our audience definitely. Um, but I'm doing a celebrity autobiography at the Broad Theater in Santa Monica, which is. Have you heard about that show? Uh, I it's, haven't. Um, Eugene Pack and his wife Dale Rayfeld uh, created this show about ten years ago, and it's readings from celebrity autobiographies. But it's celebrities like 
David Hasselhoff. I have heard of this. And the poetry of oh. Suzanne Summers. So who are you reading? Do you know I'll yet? be reading Hedy Lamarr. Oh. On. But I, I never know. You never know who you're going to be That's reading. awesome. Um, when is that? It's February 20th. Oh, I'm Two going. Two shows at 7 and at 9. And that theater's amazing. Yeah, it's the Edie, actually. There's the, you know, oh, I know the Edie is too. the big one and Edie yes. is the small it's one. It's the little black box, but it's yes. still a lovely space. It the is little a nice Edie. space. It is. It's lovely. It's a lovely campus thing. Yeah, and I'm doing Sketchfest next week. Oh, good. You're We're going up to an SNL panel. Oh, wonderful. I roped Danny into doing this. He was so sweet to agree to it, but then he, he uh, chartered a train. From? So we are from Union Station. We're going to take the train up. How many hours does that take? Eleven. <laughs> oh, what have I done? Well, but it's, it's, it's this train has a lot of incredible history to it. And Isaac Tigret, who started the House of Blues, owns the train. Oh, wow! And but it uh, it has you know it traveled all through the the country uh, during lots of historical events, but. Anyway. Well, so you'll be up in San Francisco next week. Yeah, and I'm doing a benefit for the Marsh Theater also. Oh, beautiful. Great. Well, Lorraine, I want to thank you so much for coming by. Believe it or not, we've run out of time. Oh, for crying out sakes. You'll have to come another time and sit. I'd love to. We'll talk about something else. We could. Well, whatever it is. Okay. Canasta thank or something. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, next week, uh, yes, I said next week because we're actually doing a weekly show now. Awesome. Next week, I'm going to have Rain Pryor on, who is uh, not my genetic sister, but my comedy sister. Very excited to have her. And I'd like to uh, thank everyone who makes this world possible for me. I'd like to thank Barbara Roman for being just wonderful and supporting me and kicking me in the ass uh, all the time, telling me to get my ass out in the world more. Johnny Dam for running this damn fine radio station and giving me uh, some time to blah, blah, blah to the universe. My husband, Bob, because he's really cute and sweet. I'd like to thank the Twitterverse because I've been into on Twitter a lot lately and we've had a lot of fun. Of course, Facebook land is always nice. Uh, David Brownstein and Aaron Steinberg, who you're going to hear a song of his in a second. And of course, all my friends and family. And I'd like to thank that big mysterious something that people have lots different names for. But what I like to call these days the secular Genesis machine. And I'm going to go out on a song here. Uh, and it, the song is uh, by this band, which is Aaron Steinberg's band called Captain Danger. And the song is called Hollywood Douchebag. And the reason I'm playing it is because Lorraine is not a Hollywood douchebag. Hollywood douchebag, Hollywood douchebag, Hollywood douchebag, Hollywood douchebag, Hollywood douchebag, Hollywood douchebag. He will love you like a brother if that brother fucked your grandmother. Chance. Oh, isn't he nimble? 
in spite of the thimble in his pants. Hollywood douchebag, Hollywood douchebag, Hollywood douchebag. You know why you came to this town? It was love, sweet love of yourself. Why you look Grandmother twice. 